from Havili was magic. The shift on for Crotty. Boom, far down you go, Quackett Smith. Me, oh my, I haven't enjoyed that. Yes, boy. Draft Rugby, the game they play in heaven. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Draft Rugby show, the show they play in heaven. It's been a bit of a hiatus for us. We uh, we opted out of doing anything through the Test Match Series and through the Rugby World Cup up to this point. Life has been crazy. Nelson, you've had a new little baby. You've bought a house and moved in. Welcome to you. And uh, how are things? Mate, it's going well. I, everyone says don't tell people how easy it is with <laughs> with a bub this young because he's making it look like we know what we're doing. Um, if only, you know, the players for Eddie made it look like he knew what he was doing. Yeah, no one's ever said that. Um, I've uh, I've obviously been in France having a cracker time, and as Kagi's been travelling the world, he's been MIA as well, doing a house reno and uh, baby number one on the way in Jan 10th as well. And then, of course, we are joined by none other than our own wild card, the super sub, <laughs> Alex Nabung. Now, mate, you, you haven't got a baby coming, but I, hear, I heard that after arguing with Nelson and I online about rugby so much that you went out and bought a bird so you had someone to echo what you were saying. Is this <laughs> How long did it take you to write that one, mate? That's actually not that bad. I took the day off, yeah. I took the day off. <laughs> but, um, no, I just kind of wanted to talk to you guys. Obviously, we've been arguing, I don't know, for how many months now on our, on our group chat. Um, I thought it would be different to, or good to get a different opinion. Otherwise, you'll be brainwashing the people out there. Yeah, very fair. We would be. Um <laughs> Let's go through, guys, what we're going to cover off. We're going to try and break it up for Entree. We'll just have a quick review on the Wallabies Rugby World Cup performance. Uh, we might touch on a couple of our other favourite parts of this World Cup up to date. The uh, quarterfinals have finished, so we haven't seen the semis or finals yet. Uh, for main course, we're going to talk everything Eddie Jones. Obviously, there was the media announcement this morning where he said he's committed to Australian rugby. He wants to stay on up until 2027. Obviously, the decision might not be up to him, but he's Harry, he's understanding he has the backing of RA at the moment. And he said, I'm not fucking leaving. He said, I'm not fucking leaving. He, he's not going anywhere. Yeah. And uh, for dessert, we're going to talk about... Uh, I guess lastly, just Rugby Australia and the board and and anything else about their uh, their role in all of this as well. So let's crack on, guys. Um, entree, Rugby World Cup performance review. Any opening thoughts, first of all? Nabung. Well, I, I don't know, boys. Where do we actually want to start with this whole... With this whole what the Wallabies and what we call the the World Cup at the moment, where where do we even start? Do, do, what we call it... what we call the World Cup. How, how about you start us with what your summarization of the Rugby World Cup was going to be, and how you feel about the whole thing, and then we'll go from there. Well, it's just been a shit show, really. Ever ever since ever since Eddie's kind of come on board, um. You know, and his selections for the World Cup. I know we'll cover it a lot later, and we don't want to get too deep into it quite yet. I can't be arguing with a pair of you minute into the into the podcast, but it's just been a complete shit show from the start, and it's it stemmed from you know the Tri Nations or the the Rugby Championship, the Bledisloe, and then and then walking into a World Cup with with his whole selection squad that he's had. You know the ten thousand different captains that he's had too, um, the people that have missed out, the coaches that have left, you name it. It's a shit show from the start. So I'll let you boys express your opinion as well, and then 
Maybe get the Palmer cards out and get some rebuttal going. Nelson? Uh, look, I should say it's probably a fair point, but uh, I, I think the the disappointing thing is Eddie's really used this as, you know, I, I don't know, almost an educational thing for the, the boys going, this is how you lose and you suck, so try not to do this again moving forward because he's just picked a young squad. He hasn't picked anything that we've talked about in the past, you know, about having a mature and experienced squad. I, I do think the one caveat around that is it did give people chances. He gave Quaid a chance. He failed. He gave other people chances leading into the World Cup, and it was just their form, a small amount of time, uh, and Eddie made the ball bold call, not the bold call, the bold call to um, to not to not bring those guys. And, and the questions around some of those names are, are massive, and, and I don't think we'll ever get an answer because – Eddie doesn't want to, you know, wear, wear the brunt of our, our opinions. Why why wasn't Pete Samu there? Sure, he's leaving offshore. Um, but, I mean, him over Kemeny, that, it's not not complicated. You could have had Hodge if you wanted a kicker. You know, there's, there's so many people that they could have brought in. I so, for me, it was... talked about that collectively, but not in individuals. Yeah, I know. And I think, I, personally, I think that's that's a cop-out. It's a generic line, to, to be honest. I, I, I appreciate bringing young players through, but... We have never seen this much of an experimental side enter a Rugby World Cup, and that's not what should happen. And I think he took some ownership on that uh, throughout the World Cup. He deflected a little bit on his interview this morning on, on Tuesday morning. But, yeah, I, I'm just not keen on, on going to a World Cup and, and, you know, performing an experiment, which is what he's done. Yeah, and uh, I guess to echo without saying too much of the same stuff, guys, I, I actually agree with you wholeheartedly. It was a shit show. It's probably the best way to describe it. I think we held out so much hope despite the very, very poor performances in the rugby championship. We knew that he had a tight timeline, but I think there's so much faith in Eddie Jones and the great coach that he's been over such a long period of time that when he said, guys, we'll be right for the World Cup, we all went, okay, well, not all of us, two out of three of us went, Okay, we hate the results right now, but if it's for the World Cup, no problem. We'll stick it out and we'll suck it up. And then when it all fell to shit, I've got to say it was um, easily the most most disappointing, upsetting, devastating thing to watch as a as a Wallabies fan in my lifetime, without a doubt. And there's been some pretty low moments. So, as as a Wallabies fan like yourself in France, paid a bomb truckload of money to actually go and watch these games. To watch these failures, to yeah, actually because to I went over there, mate. My kids are going to be going to public school. Like she won't be playing rugby. Clearly, so exactly, exactly. I made that decision. And uh, that's, she that's won't because be McLennan's not putting any money into the game. I'd rather put all the money towards Suwali. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, guys, let's let's dig a bit deeper. Okay, so first of all, the uh, the four games that we did get to play, we played Georgia in the opening game. We beat them thirty five to fifteen, a twenty point win. Um, I think it was relatively convincing. Georgia probably not at their absolute peak coming into this World Cup, and I think they got better as the tournament went on. But uh, what did you think of that game very briefly, Nabon? Who cares? They they yeah. were literally, it's mate, it's everyone thought, I actually got a little bit of hope after watching that game, seeing the result. Yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't bad, right? It, it wasn't, wasn't right. It wasn't, we, went, we, we got a W, and it was a good feeling to get a W because we haven't experienced one you know, with Eddie yet. So it was oh, nice to go. We we got we got a I'm not trying to belt. We we got a W. Wasn't convincing. Our defense was shit. If George is scoring, you know, easy tries, soft tries, it's gonna be a worry. 
especially with Wales as the next game. Second, but we'll we'll take the double. Second game was Fiji, which I have a completely controversial point of, uh, view to many, so I'm going with this one. 15 to 22, we go down. We score relatively late to get within seven. Now, everyone's been saying Fiji were unbelievable, and look, I'm not here to knock Fiji. They made the quarterfinals and they had a red-hot crack against England. They played very they, – they beat us. They did what was needed, and I think it was probably their best game of the tournament other than maybe the quarters. But, geez. I didn't ever once buy into the hype that this is this fantastic Fijian side that was tearing tearing up trees with how they were playing. I thought they kicked, Kuravoli kicked outstandingly well for Poles. I've never seen him kick a goal and he kicked absolutely everything. He was phenomenal. Um, and they were smart at the breakdown. They played the ref to ab- an absolute T. The referee was giving penalties every time they put their hands on the ball and they just went for it more and more. They learned, they adapted, and they were fantastic at that. Australia, on the other hand, were very, very poor. They didn't adapt. They seemed lost. They didn't kick well. They didn't play well. There were no positives for me in this Australian game really at all. And I think that's why we lost 15 to 22. So I'm not trying to completely take it away from Fiji because they did what was needed. But, geez, I think another side would have beaten us by 30 points, to, compi- to be honest. I uh, I was very, very worried after that game. To me, we were basically out of the World Cup at that point. Do you guys have any thoughts on that before we push on or do you more or less agree? No, I think you're pretty spot on. I think it was good matchup, really, for Fiji with the style they played and try to be a little bit abrasive and physical and... It, it just worked against us, and we, for some for some reason, didn't respond. And I, I, I think the biggest show of uh, lack of leadership on a field for me was probably this match. And yes, we had a worse match against Wales, but every time Fiji looked at a breakdown, they earned a penalty. And we waited sixty odd minutes before Lalakai Fakedi came off the bench and went, "Oh, all I got to do is touch it with a pinky," and he did it, and it almost changed the game and won the match for us. Like it. How could we not have someone bring the boys together and go, this is how this game is getting played. This is how the ref is refing things. Let's try and, you know, actually work to the ref and get some benefits out of it because they looked lost. They didn't look to to just pay any attention to how the game was being played. They were just, you know, running and doing the numbers like it was a, you know, a training session in the paddock and they, they weren't adding up how much they were sucking. It was terrible. And then because finally, what, guys, because finally, guys. The reason we don't, didn't have anyone to pull anyone's head in, everyone's head in, is because we had no leadership group. Who were the leadership group? Yeah, let's so, so we had we did have a, a a lack of a response. Like I'm a big Fraser McWright fan. He should have got five or six turnovers or penalties in that match. I think it's it he got nothing. I don't think he got one. Like it was to me that is Baffling. I, I, in it speaks to his role, to be honest with you. Yeah. He, his role was to hit defensive, to, to attacking rucks, and he, he seemed to be told to go on ball. Nah. Like oh, look, I, in, you, in you can't tell I, me I, that's not code that's a for him to have that's a completely out. change a role. That is a cop-out because if you're a breakdown, someone will be tackled next to you and you have the choice and the ability to get on. You have to be able to make those decisions. Eddie never went. You know, it's going to be really, really easy. So if you see an easy one, don't go for it. Get ready to make the next tackle. That, that never happened. So that's a cop out. All right. So the Wales game then, 6 to 40. Uh, Nelson, you, you've, you've jumped in there. So, Nabung, I was at this game, but uh, how was it watching at home? It was depressing, Matt. You would have been more depressing. After reading your chats, your, your chat on online, Matt, I actually felt sorry for you. So did because, I. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Honestly, this, laughing. the worst game I've ever watched in my life. I left with five minutes to go. I don't think I've ever left a game early. I barely remember the second half because I was just, I'm not an overly emotional guy. And I was just like beside myself. I couldn't understand how we could be as bad as they are. When Nelson said the Fiji game was where we we lacked leadership, I completely disagree. I think Wales was by far the most rudderless, lost performance with absolutely zero leadership I've ever seen. We were lucky to lose six to forty. Like we were diabolically bad, the worst I've ever seen. I didn't want to talk about the Rugby World Cup for 48 hours after and I was in France. I didn't wear my Wallabies jersey again for the rest of the World Cup because I didn't want any fan coming up to me to ask about that game and our performance. Like, that was an absolute embarrassment. I felt awful for the players and I felt awful for the squad and I felt awful myself as a fan. It was the worst thing I've ever watched from us. Well said, mate. Portugal. On to Portugal. Nelson, 34 to 14 we got up and we were climbing the world rankings, I think, after that one. Yeah, I think we're actually sitting in ninth now yeah. above, above Fiji, which is, I mean, it's a big call. But, um, look, realistically, this was a game that we had to win and if we didn't win, Jesus, the, it would have been bad. They would have just left the, the whole team there and said, find new contracts, boys. Because that would have been shambolic. And that's not really against Portugal because Portugal, I, I thought they could beat us. I, I was quite worried about it. And I was telling people that there is a real likelihood after those last two matches, Fiji and Wales, that we turn up, we get on the field, we have no clue what's happening, and Portugal shell shock us. Um, Portugal then went on to, to shell shock Fiji and, you know, almost did us a, a huge favour. Um, which probably wouldn't have been a favour looking at the quarterfinals, to be fair, because we would have lost by 80 and it would have been terrible again. So, yeah, look, this this was, you know, there was there was green shoots in this match, but, again, how do you read into it once you've lost three matches, you, you're pretty much out of the World Cup and, you know, what, what can you really the, take The green from? shoots are beating a, a team that was ranked 16th coming into the World Cup. Look, they, they were probably the best surprise packet of this entire World Cup, I must say. I loved watching every single one of their games. better than Georgia. They fully des- deserved to beat Fiji. They they were so close to beating Georgia. Unlucky not to get across the line there. They drew with them. They were fantastic to watch. When I went to that game, the Portuguese fans before kickoff were saying, like, we're worried for you. Like, we genuinely think we can win. Yeah. And that's just crazy, crazy to be <laughs> in that position. And, look, I think we were very lucky they got a yellow card in that first half because from memory, we scored a couple of tries during that time. We we took advantage of that, and that's when the game blew out. Like, that's the reason that we got ahead and kind of controlled the match for me. So, yeah, it was um, – Portugal were good, and I think we uh, we didn't really blow them away despite a 20-point uh, scoreline. So what, what happened? We scored two tries, I think, or maybe even three tries during that yellow, but then we had two yellow cards. Can we just um, point out that Samu Karevi yellow card? Like, Almost the exact same thing. I've never seen anyone else ever get carded for the elbow out in front. Jesse Creel did it, mate, to DuPont. Jesse Creel did it to DuPont in the quarters, and the French fans are blowing up. I've got a French physio that's working with us at the moment, blowing up about it. I said, mate, the only person that's ever been carded that for is is Karebi, and it's happened twice at two World Cups. No one else can get done for it. Seriously ridiculous. But, look, I mean... It's you, you sit there and go, sure, surely he should have learned from it. But you also look at it and go, that happens all the time and never gets pinned. So I don't know. 
Look, let's. Yeah, boys, I, I I didn't actually watch the Wallabies Portugal game because I was so fucking upset. I wasn't going to waste my time to wake up in the morning and actually watch that dog shit. We yeah, won we, that, um, we we almost changed our uh, our holiday after the game. I said to my wife that um, we weren't going to go to Saint Etienne. We were travelling from Bordeaux to Lyon, down to Saint Etienne, and then back to Lyon. Then had another six a.m. flight the next day. And we uh, we were actually just going to not go to San Etienne. I was just going to stay in Lyon close to the airport and not bother. I ended yeah. up at the end of the week saying I really want to see Australia do well and I really want to watch Portugal. So I went yeah. out there. But, yeah. um, mate, it was um, – and, and luckily got to go have a catch-up with Atco before the game, which was good fun as well. Um, and Atco knows. He tipped a 20-point win, 34 to 14, I think he predicted. Um, and uh, it was it was good to go. But, uh, yeah, very close to changing things. Yeah, cool. Guys, individual player performance. So let, let, in summary, shit show. All right, individual player performances. So I've got the squad there for you if you want to have a little uh, look at it as well as just a reference point. But, guys, the guy, the, the, the players that enhanced their performances, uh, Nabung, who did you think kind of came away from that World Cup looking better than when they went in and performed above expectation or, or as well as you would expect mm-hmm. a good player to play? Yeah, no, fair enough. I actually think it's the people that didn't play. So Michael Hooper's stocks actually went up big time, especially in commentary. Yeah, Samu's went absolutely through the roof. His stocks look good. Quake Cooper looks like a really good bloke for once. Who else? Who else missed out? Bernard Foley, James O'Connor, Icky Tao. Everyone's stocks that didn't go up. Went up. Bernard Foley wasn't on the field, mate, but he was working hard off it. He was having a beer with every Australian supporter. And his and his stocks were going up. Oh, so far up. So far up. So that's that's anyone that didn't go, wasn't selected, the stocks went up. I uh, just just before we push on, because I think it's noteworthy, Michael Hooper made he's he made himself look like the greatest guy in the world in that commentary team, particularly when we were as bad as we were. And they basically asked Hooper, like, what did you think about Eddie Jones' decisions for the World Cup? And he came out and defended the bloke. Like, yeah. number one, why would you ask him that? But number two, how about the class to just go, yes, yeah, straight bat, look, it's not his fault. This is the situation, fix the system, blah, blah, blah. And this is and, and this, yeah, and this is a guy that had to ring he had to go make a phone call himself apparently to actually find out that he wasn't oh, in the yeah, squad yeah. so he's, he's yeah, an absolute guy, class yeah. act and this is the leadership we didn't have on the field yeah he's one of those guys like he just had to be there even if he was injured or anything like that surely yeah to have him in the squad over there for his leadership but i mean that was the best i've ever heard him speak i wasn't super excited for for listening to him i, I knew he's got experience and he, he'd have intelligent takes but thought at times he hadn't he'd been a little monotone and then you listen to his time on on stand and it was awesome like sign that guy up and, and give him a gig each week I, want to listen he to was the best. Again. I mean he's given everything already to to rugby australia you know give back to him a little bit but um yeah no brilliant brilliant from him uh good players and also do you think exceeded expectation or raised their profile that did play Mate, there was not a, there was not many Waratahs on the field, uh, but I'll name a couple for you: Angus Bell, Marky Mark, Nawanganita Wasi. Those two boys, cheers! Um, I'm happy they're staying at the Waratahs and they're staying in Australia because they are both very young and they have abilities to play two more World Cups at least, um, and they've they've got huge ceilings. I, I think Valentini 
at times was was really really promising as well. Um, and I don't know if you saw. I made a made an image um, in in case of emergency break glass, and it was Andrew Kellaway in the middle of it. And I think he did himself, you know, no disservice when he came on in, in a team that was pretty much failing by the time he he turned up and and got on the field. But I think Kellaway played well. Um, yeah, just, I, just I, on I, Valentini, I, I think the hard thing for him is him and Bell had to take all the gain line right, and Karevi as well. You know, they they were the only guys running gain line. And when I, th- I think we saw in that first game with Skelton and Tupo still fit, that having all those big bodies, they were they were very very effective. I think losing those two guys puts such a burden on Valentini and Karevi to be the big ball okay. carries in the side. I actually think they did it quite well, not exceptionally well, but I think they just had too much to do. I, I actually think both of those guys were quite effective with their ball carries and probably copped a bit of flack that they shouldn't have. Um, I've, I've got down some pass marks, guys. I thought Richie Arnold was probably as good as I'd hoped or expected, but wasn't exceptional. I think he played well in the back end. Nick Frost, similarly, like young guy, I thought was quite good. Karevi, I, as I've already mentioned, you know, copped some slack, but I thought he was uh, relatively effective, albeit not back to his world-beating form that we kind of hoped from him. Um, Jordi Pataya, I think, did a decent job at outside centre as well. Um, although, you know, there's another player I would have rather have there that wasn't picked. And uh, Donaldson as well. I think playing at fullback was fantastic for us in that first game and we started to see how important he was for us. And then I think as a stopgap solution, you know, you've got to give him a bit of credit to come in and, and play the way he did. I, I don't think he was the uh, experienced 10 that we needed, but equally I think he he performed better than I would have expected for sure. He's, he copped it from from just people on social media. Like there there was nothing wrong with Ben Donaldson. He made a few key mistakes, and I mean he's a young guy, not very experienced, thrown in a side, shifted position. The team's fallen apart around him, and he was our man of the match in that game one, and and showed glimpses of being a really good player. I saw people go, "He is not up to Super Rugby standard. Why is he there?" It's just rubbish. Like he, he did not have a good. I mean, the argument is there that he wasn't that good at Super Rugby this year. So yeah. I understand where the argument's coming from. To be fair, he's not even the choice ten. Is he? Edmund's the choice ten. Uh back end, back half of the year, he definitely was. He was, but Edmund was injured because of injury. But look, the the thing yeah. was, I think people were a bit too harsh on him. He's young, had played one game or two games or something for the Wallabies before the World Cup. I, I think he's definitely a pass mark. He wasn't good across the board, mm. but he had, he showed glimpses of being quite good. And yeah, he was fine. Just... He can't. He can't help that he got selected. There's nothing yeah, yeah. he can do about that. He I mean, he said himself pre World Cup. He didn't expect to get picked. To be honest, so yeah. um, I didn't really, expect to get him, picked. Him if you threw Kevin me out there, I would look terrible. Don't blame me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you probably could have got a pill for him in that first game in that um, oh, Fiji game. That boy, <laughs> guys. What about? I'll, I'll throw this one to you, Nabung. Who do you think uh, didn't play as well as you would have expected? Uh, the rest of the team. The rest of the squad. No one in particular. Oh, I, I don't. I don't understand why Ulysses there. Didn't he come on for oh. five minutes and he gets injured? And it's just like I, I don't understand what Eddie Jones is doing. I, I like he, it's. It's a complete. He, he loves. He loves body types. Eddie Jones loves body types, and Ulysses is just one of those useless body types that's just the most injury prone bloke, and not the prince that was promised. So. For me, it was Ulysses. Obviously, Kemeny as a utility was a shocker. I tell you, as a utility, who was that guy, the Sapper guy, that came in for the hooker 
and he played back row and took Khaleesi off. That's that's the oh, utility. We, we used to pick him in fantasy footy all the time, and they they throw him in the back row because he was apparently in a hooker at the that's, time. That's that's a utility, not Kemeny. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, look, and Donaldson, I don't know that we can call him a true utility either. You're thinking of um, uh, Fourie, Dion Fourie. Fourie, yeah, he was good too. <clears throat> Um, yeah, the other one for me was Rob Liotta. Like the, the guys are, I think he's a the captain at Melbourne. I think he's a vice captain or in the leadership team now at the Wallabies. I'm, I think he had one good game last year, and I'm still waiting to see anything that convinces me that he has what it takes at this level. And I know this is a personal attack, and it's probably not very fair, but the guys barely played. He's shown no form through no fault of his own. He's not he's not at a world class level where he's coming back in and has all this you know experience and performance to kind of lean back on. And yet he's in this leadership team, and we kept picking him in the starting side in the back half. Like, out of for what reason? Like, what had anyone seen? I said a couple of times in the World Cup, like he must be the world's best trainer because someone somewhere along the line between Rennie and Eddie are seeing this bloke run around. It's not on the field; he hasn't played. And then he's getting picked for the Wallabies in the starting side. Like, I just do not get it. Doesn't make Adeline, but, doesn't make that many big hits, doesn't have a big work rate, doesn't have a hand. Like, what, what do they see? Yeah, I I, look, I, I don't really get I don't get it. I think he's just, he's, they, they look at him and go, he's slightly smaller than Valentini. Maybe he's someone we can use in a similar role. Um, but we've seen maybe one match across the last few years. He's 26, I think, now he's older than Valentini. As you said, he, he barely played footy, so how are we going off picking on form? Um, I mean, leeringly obvious, you could have had Pete Samu <laughs> You know, like, jeez. Holloway, Pete Holloway, like, like, lock six. Holloway, yeah, jeez. Anyway. Are we going to touch on Bunny Valley's selection at all, or are we going to do that later? No, no, we'll do it now. Well, boys, why can someone answer the question, especially the form that Kellaway was in? Why is Vuni Valu? He had a poor super season, absolutely poor super season, and now Eddie Eddie's picking him on the bench, if not starting. I don't. I. It, it doesn't. I, it doesn't equate to me at all. It doesn't. It doesn't really add up. I. I, I think he was one of those ones that you go. Eddie's picked. On what he sees as a potential, and he thinks he can get the best out of Unavalu, and that's probably Eddie's toxic trait. Maybe well, that's what Leo's squad. But we're talking twenty three here. You don't pick on potential in in a twenty but, a game day twenty three. I'm not saying it's justified. I'm saying that's what I think Eddie has done. I think Eddie's toxic trait is he thinks he can get the best out of these players and try to do it in a short amount of time with a young squad, and it didn't work. That that was Ulysses. Everyone goes, he's the prince that was promised. Eddie goes, I can get it, the best out of him. Leota, we've shown glimpses. I can get the best out of him, and, and he failed on all fronts with getting the best out of players. So I would say yeah. more, more um, delving in a little deeper than he thinks he could just turn him into a good player when he was coming off the bench on that moment. Um, I, I think that's why he got picked in the squad. I just don't think you can pick someone twenty three because you think you can get the best out of them. Like you already know where they're at. They don't just magically turn into a good player. I think he sees his game-breaking ability with his vertical jump and his power and his athleticism, and he compares him to a player like Mark Nwanganitawasi. And I think his idea is we need to put someone that can score us points out of nowhere as a game-breaker late in the match. 
And he decided that we needed to have Donaldson kicking goals and he wanted the dual playmaker. And Kellaway, for all his strength, is not a dual playmaker, really. So I think that Kellaway didn't quite fit the mould of what he originally thought he wanted out of his fullback. And then he decided that it was better to have Marky Mark at fullback with how he was playing and a strike player come in on the wing off the bench rather than have the safe hands of Kellaway to just steady the sheep at the back end. Now, I think all three of us completely disagree with that to the point where we all would have probably started Kellaway, but at the very least had him in the 23. But I think that's where he's coming from. It's just... When you have the performances that Vonavalu has on record, I don't understand what leg you have to stand on to say he is a decisive game breaker to justify that selection. I think um, this this is speaks a little deeper to to Aussie rugby limit as well with our links to to rugby league and the crossfield kick when you're close. If, if you've got nothing on, you can crossfield kick at the at the end of your fifth tackle and hope someone gets over him. And they've gone. Vunavalu, surely he can do that with Marky Mark. So you've got those two on the wings. So you don't have to really, you know, get over the line. And the other last one is, I mean, we, we had Falau and we, we didn't seem to use it, but it seemed something that Checky had a checker had up his sleeve, did it early, knew that it could work, and then then we never saw it again because Falau pissed off. So mm-hmm. I, I think yeah, that rugby league link, it's a little bit of what rugby Australia tries to have as that DNA, is that big core athletic winger. Um, but yeah, it's it didn't work, and I, I think it was a bit crazy. Mooney Barley's sucked. Just get rid of him. Yeah, back to league for free. Oh, look, the, the guys, the guys, willing to take a pay cut and put the work in. I'm all, for, I'm all for him staying around. But I just wouldn't have picked him. I, I don't think yeah, we have to pick him back to league. You know, he's taking a huge pay cut and he's staying around. Like to me, that's all you got to show to to be able to keep his yeah. spot because he deserves his spot in the in the red squad. But there's no way yeah. we're doing all of this. There's just no way. Because that, that's we are, he takes we are, a notebook to training. He deserves it. We are we are kicking on through uh, a full podcast of Andre at the moment, so we'll keep going. Uh, the injury run, guys. I had a question a little bit earlier from Ed Logue at Mister Grumpy ninety seven um, on Twitter, who I could have sworn um, Nabung had Mister Grumpy one through ninety nine, so he did run out of those tags. Um, he said, why are we getting so many soft tissue injuries? So NRL physio on that as well back in August this year said, we've had five Achilles ruptures in 13 months in one team. He said the NRL has only had nine across all NRL clubs in the past six years. So they play 10 times the matches. They play double the games. They have no, no, 10 times the matches. Yeah. For, like you're talking about the number of teams. Yeah, absolutely. So. Oh. The number's sky high, right? So RA, to, to touch on this, first of all, RA said that they had a new injury prevention system for 2023 after an extensive review in 22. We know that there was something like 65 players used by Rennie over the last two years or something. There was 40-something injuries in a calendar year for the Wallabies squad, something along those lines. It's just like dive, like insane numbers, absolutely insane numbers. So to answer the question from Ed Logue, why are we getting so many soft tissue injuries? The issue with this from a, a physio point of view is, number one, we don't know. There's a lot of these that are that are unlucky. So the contact ones, like dislocated shoulders, fractured legs, sternum injuries, 
uh, fractured shoulder blade for Ikatao, that kind of stuff, like they're contact injuries. And realistically, there's no good way to prevent that that we know. There's injury prevention programs, but we, we, we there's a fair bit of luck in that, and we've been very unlucky. Secondly, for all the soft tissue injuries, Achilles, hammies, quads, all that kind of stuff that we're seeing so many of, there's two main risk factors. Number one is age. The older you are, the more likely it is to happen. Now, it has happened mainly to some of our older players, but Tupo is not older, for instance, so that's not every case. And we had the youngest squad in the entire World Cup. So considering we were struggling to field our best team a lot more than anyone else, that doesn't really add up. And then the last one is previous injury history. So if you've had a hammy tear, that's the biggest indicator you'll have another. If you've torn a car, that's the biggest injury uh, predictor for another. So I think these things are snowballing as well. So to try and get on top of them is hard. And I think we're probably going to see for some time to come a higher injury risk for soft tissue injuries in the Wallabies because of what's gone on. The only other thing I would point out is maybe it comes down to our S&C programs contributing as well. You know, we know that these, for instance, like an Achilles injury would probably be more likely if they weren't doing enough high impact, kind of like bouncing and sprinting loads. Same with hammies, not enough sprinting loads. But, you know, we talk so much about trying to get their um, their fitness right for the Wallabies. So maybe it comes down to mismanagement of training loads and performance and fitness at super rugby level, which has then been thrown hard at them in international level and that's when they're breaking down so that would be my guesses and thoughts from what research is out there and just some uh, projecting as well but that's kind of where i would say we're at a weird thing on that as well is like our super rugby players play 14 rounds they play 14 matches in the regular season the english comp plays 24 the french comp plays i think 26 rugby league is i'm pretty sure even higher than that so I mean, they've got bigger squads. They rotate a little bit more, but these players are playing so much, so many more minutes than we're playing, and we're worrying about protecting them and going. Well, we're getting injuries, so let's make them play less. Let's make them have a couple of weeks off. Things along those lines. They're barking down the wrong door. There's there's something that's not right that they need to fix. And I think obviously, as you're talking about, it's the biometrics and other bits and pieces. But it's not that they're playing too much footy. That's definitely not what it is. Yeah. Guys, we've got two quick topics left on the entree before we push on. Number one, um, other team performances. Can you just give me your highlight for the World Cup? For hey, Portugal. It's Portugal. Like the, the Portugal one-point win was so perfect for what needed to happen because Portugal deserved the win. They should have had it over Georgia. Australia did not deserve to make it through. And if Portugal won by eight or more, Australia made it through and Fiji missed out. So it was perfect. But what I think this World Cup really needed and what was deserved, Portugal deserved the win, Fiji deserved more than us to get through. Can I just say, so many people are saying if Portugal beat Fiji by eight, then Australia didn't deserve to go through. Just to clarify, they 100% would have deserved to go through. They hadn't played well, but if they scored the second most competition points, then they deserved to go through to finals. Like It would just mean that the competition was so even on the bottom four. And although well, yeah, Australia underperformed, it makes no sense you're, you're whatsoever. Looking, you're looking at, Harry, you're looking at uh, deserve as a really rigid term. People deserve something because, yes, they got more points. So if Fiji beat Australia but but lost to Portugal by more than eight, they deserve to go through, but Australia don't. I I said Fiji deserved more than what we did. Neither of them deserved to go through. I don't think Fiji deserved to go through. They were pretty woeful for most of that pool. I disagree. But Australia definitely didn't deserve it. They were the second best team in our pool. 
And that means they deserve to go through. So I completely disagree. Nabun, you're pretty objective about these things in our previous arguments. What do you reckon? I think the people that played whoever's plays the the runner-up of our pool just gets a bye and they just automatically go through. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it basically was, wasn't it? Everyone's rubbish, yeah. Well, Fiji put up a fight, but yeah. The only other one um, I wanted to say was uh, Bottia, the, the Fijian seven, mate. Like, we don't see much of him down the Southern Hemisphere because he plays in France. He is unbelievable. Apparently, he used to play centre in the professional combat there as well before moving to seven. I think him announcing himself to the rest of the rugby world in this World Cup, that was a highlight for me. He is exceptional, exceptional. Oh. I'll say, adding to him, there is a long list of players from, you know, Tier 2 or Minnow Nations that, geez, they look good. Nina Nashvili, for for one, like, there, there were players that came through from young age. Capuazzo, yes, Italy. Storti from Portugal. You know, Garabisi, how good did he look? Um, there was just Martins from Portugal. The guy's, yeah. the guy's a lot playing in the flank. And, geez, he was good. There were some, you know, players from Minnow countries that, they're, they're about to get a 10x, you know, in their wage because they're going to have French clubs who are just watching them play that want to sign them now. So that, that's always awesome to see. Guys, very last question for this entree. Uh, Nabung, who wins the World Cup? One word. Um, actually, I, I think it's going to be the Kiwis. All right. Nelson? I hate to say it. I think box. I think the Kiwis will win as well. All right, let's push on. We won't, we won't elaborate because this podcast will go for four hours. Guys, the main course this is what we're here for. So this is the therapy. There's probably five minutes left after this. So let's get into it. Um, this is why uh, Nabung, if you have tuned in on YouTube, or if you haven't, he's got Wildcard on his background because he's just he wants some inspiration for this section, I think. Please. So I expect tears. I expect this is a therapy. Feeling. This is a therapy session for, for me right now. That is what we promised you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, so, so I've got a couple of things to go through here. First of all, what do we make of his performance for this year in this World Cup, Nelson and Nabung, let's let's go, mate. No, Ed, we're Eddie. we're talking about not dumb and dumber. So Eddie Jones dumb and, and McLean's dumber, right? That's we're starting with dumb. Old Eddie Jones. What do we think of his performance? It it couldn't be a worse performance from a head coach of all time. We actually, one of us sitting here in this pod, could have had a few assistant coaches with us. And we would have done a better job than what Eddie Jones came out of this, this World Cup. We've, if you take, let's just say the Australian cricket team, they used to have Justin Langer. Now they have um, Andy, that's what his last name. But he he's a coach that literally sits back, lets his assistant coaches and lets the team do the work around him. The game plan that Eddie Jones had this World Cup, what game plan did he have? All this analysis on him, all this, all this analysis on him, and what the fuck actually happened in the pool matches? I just, I I can answer that. I I think the perfect, um, the perfect comparison is with Gatland and Wales, right? Gatland went to the players and said, "All right, how do you want to play? Let's simplify and let's play the way you want to play." And they made a very straightforward game plan about exactly what they wanted to do, and they did it very well. I thought they exceeded expectation. I think Eddie went, 
We need to be the best team in the world by 2027. Here's the incredibly innovative, complex game plan that I want to play. Yep. You boys have got six tests to work it out. Then we go into Super Rugby, in, into the World Cup, even though you don't have any international experience. And lo and behold, they didn't do that very well. Uh, we saw it in England. They were struggling through about a three-year period, I think it was, trying to learn this system as well. So it, it shouldn't have come as much of a surprise that we weren't going to pick it up in that time. We all, you know, bit our tongue before the World Cup because you've got to wait to see the performance. But Jesus Christ, it was – I completely agree, Nabung. Like you watch us play, it's like we had absolutely no game plan because I think we just didn't understand it. We didn't well, know players, players didn't know their role, and that was so good about Gatlin. Every single player, and that's what's so good, great about Ireland, every player knows the smallest intricacies of their role towards the game plan. And the Wallabies have no, absolutely no idea. Yeah, 100%. I, look, I, I, I think that's... Very much on Eddie, and it is also yeah. very, very much on Hamish McLennan and people that try to go, let's bring in a new coach then and a new whole, you know, coaching squad around that. But it was something that was was ridiculous. It was never going to work. I don't know how they thought they could create this, this game plan that's never really been successfully done before and failed for a few years with England and think we could learn it in six tests when we're rotating our players. Like we're, we're starting Quaid and stuff and then going, ah, no, we don't want him. Let's now put someone else there. Ah, no, we don't want him. Now let's put someone else there and still think they can get this complex game plan down. And it, it wasn't going to work. I, I think they reverted in the end, and, and Harry and I talked a little bit about this before the World Cup too. They had a bunch of very large ball runners who could get over the game line, and we actually started to put on some good phases when we could go over the game line, over the game line, over the game line, a few phases in a row. And then as soon as that wasn't working, we would revert to try and kick and other things along those lines. You take away Skelton, you take away Tupo, and we lost some of that punch. And it just showed how much we were relying on that, even though we were losing games beforehand, but we looked like we could actually have some strike power. It showed how much we were really lacking in in anything other than, you know, punching over the game line a few times and hoping something opened up. Yeah, I, but I just I don't even think that losing Skelton or Tupo, losing those punts, yeah, they're good players, but I just don't think that there's that's the reason it was why, I mean, it why, was, why we it's, were so poor. It's not the I reason, think. but it was a tangible difference. Like it, I mean, there is no doubt. You watch the games then in the World Cup and when they were playing, we would get over the game line phase after phase, and at points I was sitting there watching, going, geez. You don't see many teams repetitively getting over the game line like we were. We were just not finishing things off in the lead-up to the World Cup. And then all of a sudden we lose that brunt and then we didn't even get to the point of failing to get the ball over the try line. We, we were never even putting ourselves in that position through the World Cup without them. Let's talk to the exclusions because I think um, we should be honest about our position pre-World Cup here. Let's talk uh, Michael Hooper, Quade Cooper, Lenny Katow, um, anyone else that you want to throw in there on the oh, Pete, Pete Samu, Samu. Like Pete, Samu. Pete Samu. Okay, so probably those four are the big ones, right? So I think Nelson and I in particular, maybe not Nabung, um, Nelson and I in particular have been pretty vocal about the fact that we didn't think Michael Hooper's form has been mm. up to it. We think he he looked disengaged at the Waratahs and that uh, Fraser McWright's form was a lot better. Now, we said that we straight up wouldn't pick him as our start in seven many, many times. Um, would I have dropped him out of the complete World Cup squad? I'm not sure that I would have. I probably would have had him as the backup, to be honest. 
But, you know, you can go back and misquote me there um, from pre-World Cup maybe, or maybe you can quote me um, for that. Quade Cooper, I think we all believed you can pipe up if you disagree that he was always going to be our starting 10. Now, Eddie gave him a fair few chances at the start of this cycle, and he obviously didn't like what he saw, so he moved away. My gut feel is if someone was going to pipe up to not liking this, throw the young guys into this incredibly complex game plan six months out from a World Cup, it was probably Quade with the competence to say, this is what we should be doing. I'm not sure we're going in the right direction here. So I just think that maybe his maturity worked against him in that regard as well. So he was probably a big shock. Um, because because Eddie doesn't want anyone to speak against him. It's, he's, a, he's just a massive dictator. And those people that have had experience other, or as several coaches, several winning coaches, hmm. like the Hoopers, like the Coopers, those kind of leaders... He doesn't want those words in the change room because they speak against what he wants to do. Yeah, I no think he, he likes strong leaders, just obviously following what he what he wants. And, you know, we're, we're speculating, but I, I do think that that's, you know, Quaid would be that guy that would say what he wanted and it might not fall in line. Quaid shows, I think, coming, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I think I think what you're saying is, is pretty close to probably what's true. I, I think it shows that he goes, we're having to do something very different and we don't need the resistance and these guys aren't playing well enough, it's hard to justify bringing them along when they won't play well enough at this World Cup and they're not going to be a part moving forward. I think, excusably, like, you probably could leave Hoops and Coops out of your out of your match day 23. But, they, I mean, I don't know how they're not at the World Cup in the squad with their experience. But, excusably, as Harry touched on form-wise, they both could have been left out of your match day 23 I don't understand how you leave Ikatao out when he did return in terms of injury midway through. You left um, Pete Samu out and those guys who their form was fucking good. Their form was not bad. Their form was fucking good in the best team in Australian Super Rugby looking very, very good. So for me, they're almost the bigger issues, I I think, than, than, you know, not selecting Hoops and Coops in your 23 should have been in your squad. So I read this as Pete Samu is 31 and he's going overseas. So he's gone, we need to move on, we're building for 25, 27. That, that's the is, is only fun. way I can possibly... Is Kemeny the guy for it? Like, that that's is the question. Only... Is, is Kemeny the guy for it? That's that's the question you have to ask because so it's think, justifiable if Kemeny is look, the I guy. Think, I think Kemeny was always picked as the last forward bag holder. He's aggressive, he's big, he's energetic. He probably saw him as one of those guys that could really flatten people and fire people up at training, to be honest. That's that's what I think his role was. He's, he's younger, you know, he's a development player, and I think we all agree that he has potential to be quite a good back rower. Do we think he'll definitely get there? I can say I don't think definitely, but he's he's got potential. Let's not shit on Kemeny too much. He, I, like, he, I like Kemeny, but... So, so right. I, I, I think that's probably why I was picked. I think it was just purely he didn't see the value of Pete Samu, which we all disagree with. He's 31 and moving overseas next year. So he put a line in the sand. He said, well, if you're not a big game changer, I'm building for the yes. future. I want to see Kemeny in the World Cup squad, hopefully killing it in four years' time, and this experience will be very useful, and he's going to help to develop the other players in the in the uh, World Cup cycle as well while we're here. He's only 24, so he'll be he'll be ripe. He'll be perfect age in four years' time. Eddie Jones has ended Cooper and Hooper's careers, international careers now. Cooper, yeah. the cornerstone of of well, the Wallabies, who's carried it, he's carried us on his back for the last ten plus years. He didn't even get a farewell. 
Cooper, who's been monumental in how for however many years as well, you know, raises a golden child. Um, again, and he, he was playing some really good rugby up until he got injured last year. Again, he, he didn't get to pass on any of his knowledge or his IP. He's barely played for two years. He's yeah. barely played for two years, and he's 35. Yeah, but, yeah, but before even before that, these are, these guys are, you know, big player wallabies and have been for a long time, and Eddie's just killed their career. And guys, look, look, look I, I let's go to the last that. player, Lenny Katow, fractured his shoulder blade and was going to be out for roughly six weeks, give or take a week or two. So understandably might have missed the very start of the World Cup, but I think he was playing in the second or third week of the World Cup anyway. Now, he's been picked. He was at full training. I think he was at full running before the world. they left for the World Cup. So he, it's not like he was going to be unfit or anything like that. Um He's been picked despite other players in the squad being injured and being carried through. And Lenny Cattell, I think, has been one of the first picked players in every Wallabies team. Rennie Rennie was first picked. So can can anyone justify that at all? Because that's the one I find the hardest. He genuinely is one of the potential world 15 contenders in the Wallaby squad because he is the best defensive centre, I reckon, outside centre in the world, and he, he's shown he can be a, a very good attacking player as well. And when you're making so much change, surely you need that defence. Pattaya can, you know, show a bit of starch, can make a hit or two, but he's not the same quality in defence uh, in, in your, your 13 channel, not even close. Uh, as Pattaya like. even play a game at centre during Super Rugby? No. Uh, I I don't know to be honest. How how know. is there any cohesion or understanding Mate, of his job role? Twelve months ago, when twelve months ago I said he should never ever be playing center. <laughs> I go stop him playing center. He tries to throw the ball out and do something stupid and play him on the wing, or you know de- over time he's he's shown he could maybe be a fullback option. I literally said twelve months ago he should never be a center. Yeah. And I does I pick him. Yeah, fuck. Like, well, I, I don't, I don't not... think that's yeah, but look, to be fair, I, I actually think he did pretty well did, this all right. Up. I thought he was pretty good. I think he was nowhere near as uh frivolous with throwing away prese- possession. So it's not a it's not a knock on him. I think I think just Lenny Catalis has been first picked because of how good and reliable he is. Same with Callaway. It's just crazy in, in Test 40 not to have that kind of reliability. But guys, look, let's let, let's push on a little bit as well, um, unless you've got anything pressing. Um nothing pressing. The, he made he made sixty nine percent of his tackles per tire, which isn't great. And he made a yeah, tackle every cool. twenty minutes, so he was not very involved at all in defence mm-hmm. as an outside centre. So I think it's easy to not look bad when you need to try four tackles a game and you miss one of them at least. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, look, the, what what do we think of the youth policy? We got on screen now the average age for the Rugby World Cup teams for the entire squad. Uh, we were the youngest at 26.5, Italy, Georgia, Uruguay, Fiji next. Um, if we go through to the teams that made the top eight, um, basically, again, obviously we're the youngest, but the, the numbers jump up again more or less the most experienced, the oldest teams were making the finals, right? Like for the vast majority, you were in the top. The, the simple thing was, if you look at that, go back to the um, ones that shows, yeah, just the top eight and us. If you look at the top five, four of them made it and one of those top two teams, you know, like a lot of these teams were playing each other. So um, 
either New Zealand or Ireland were making. They both couldn't. So four of those top five were the teams that made it through. France, who everyone talked about being huge World Cup contenders, very, very good squad. They were younger than the rest of those. They didn't make it through. So, I mean, Wales, they they were marginally younger. Again, they had other things that playing a role. But the box are older. The box have played together for a long period of time, and it worked for them. Argentina have got a stable kind of more mature group. England have got a more mature group. New Zealand have a pretty mature group. It it really looks simple when we've talked before the World Cup that having experienced players and cohesion is what's going to win you, win you a match, what's going to win you a World Cup. And we picked a young group that hasn't played together and then try to do something completely different how we play. It's just bonkers. With that, you know, all the other teams, they have elder, experienced players mixed upon the young group as well. They might throw the stat out a little bit. The biggers with, you know, the, the young guys. For us, it's just literally all young blokes with zero experience. I, I think the scary thing here is, you know, for how much we talk about how young our team is, we're ha- on average half a year younger than Italy, Georgia, 0.6 of a year Uruguay, points not uh so teams that suck right? so just under a year pretty... we're, we're point 0.9 of a year younger on average than france who have just gone through a four-year rebuild so we're if in, we're in if we're in year one of a rebuild and france have just started a four-year rebuild so they're four years ahead of us and they're only on average one year or point 0.9 of a year older than us, that means even when we do get to the same point of that cycle, we're going to be three years older than them. We're going to be the same average age as South Africa, at the oldest end of this this period, um, this table, 30 and a half years old in four years' time. So we're going to be a very old team at that point if we continue we, to with this same kind of squad. I mean, if we pick the exact same squad, yes, and vast majority of those players will then be able to go on and play the following, or a good chunk of them will be able to go on and play the next World Cup. So we, we do have a couple older blokes, your your slippers and things like that that are that are in the squad um, that throw it out a little bit, and we have a couple of those guys that are middle age bracket that you know your Leotas and things like that that you know we we have questioned a little bit of of whether we think they should be there, but the the truth is the bulk of you know what we relied on in our match every single match was very very young. So, another, I mean, who, who cares about the twenty twenty seven World Cup? We. We're here in 2023 right now. How is it acceptable to actually choose a team for four years down the track? Who knows where we're going to be in four years? How Maybe. how much, though, Nabung, do we need to accept the reality of where we were as a nation? And even under Rennie, as, as much as we all loved loved that Wallabies team despite their poor performances and we understand the challenges they had with injuries, how much do we just need to say, well, we were never going to go that well, even with Rennie. Let's say we made the semis because we scraped through into the quarters in second place and then even maybe scraped through England mm-hmm. or scraped through uh, Argentina. Is that so important that it's worth taking a year of development away and experience away from a, a big group of young players? 100%. How, how, much, how, how much loss of trust have we had in, in, in the Wallabies? And how many fans have we lost? You know, we talk about the Lions in a couple of years. We talk about the 2027 mm-hmm. World Cup. But the amount of fans and even all my friends, I've I've lost a bit of faith being a big Wallaby supporter and going to previous World Cups. I've lost a bit of faith myself in the system, in the Wallabies, with, with everything to do with it. It's just how good's a W? That's why we felt so good about beating Georgia. 
and then and then you know from there it's just kind of collapsed i think you've got i think everybody's got a bit of a personal line as a fan and and some of us are more forgiving than others i i would put it out there and go i will i will exit in a pool in 2023 to win the lions tour and get into a grand final and potentially win 2027 any day of the week over making it to a quarterfinal and scraping through and then getting pumped there or being very lucky and make a semifinal and then have a complete refresh the following year, lose in 2025 with the Lions Tour and then be in the exact same position we are in 2027. But you've got to find the line. Like that doesn't mean you have free yeah. license to do whatever the hell you want. And That's I think the thing is, I think the inexcusable thing is that Eddie could have found a better balance. He could have picked this young squad that the bulk of these top players still played, but you're not picking random young guys that might not be there in two years, four years, and, and you then replace them with those experienced players and, and transition better. So, guys, here's my other question, my other point to you. The South African team that won on the weekend had an average of 53.9 test caps in the 23, 23. 15, 23. Uh, the New Zealand team that beat Ireland on the weekend had an average of 59.4, so 54 and 60 test caps, respectively, for South Africa and New Zealand. Now, there's roughly 50, 51 tests a year, sorry, a, a World Cup cycle, and so we've got about 50-odd tests before the next World Cup cycle. So for us to have that level of experience, considering a huge bulk of our players have between zero and 20 tests, Really, we need to pick us and stick 23 to 30 players for the next four years, and they need to play all the way through for us to be seen as, you know, just quite, not the most experienced, but quite an experienced side. I think that will give us a bunch of players with 40 to 70 test caps. Now, we're still not going to be the most experienced because our, our players with very high test caps are all going to retire. There's not really many guys that are going to go through that are on 40 caps now. So we're not going to have the 90 and 100 and 110, 120 test cap guys in four years. So I don't, to my knowledge, there is no team running around that doesn't have that 12, 1300 test caps in a side that's actually getting a long way. And I don't know that you can reset hit a hard reset, get rid of all your old players and actually develop that experience in a four-year cycle. I don't believe it's long enough. And Eddie Jones has already in the last month started talking about it takes five years to get a good team. So five years after the World Cup, the next World Cup. Right, so five years I've got an issue with us getting rid of the experience so harshly because of the fact that we are going too far down the road of a reset and we're ignoring the experience that we do have. So look, uh, five years is not starting today, Harry. Five years start at the start of the year. So he's including this as one of the five years of picking a young squad. We can't say he's picked the young squad, but it doesn't count as one of those five years. So, so, so Eddie's already giving himself some ex- some excuses. It's 2027. But the end of 2027, no, he's not. getting good. No, no. He is not giving himself a shred of an excuse in 2027. He's saying we have bombed out and been shithoused mm. now because it's all for 2027. He has not given him any way out in 2027. Not, not even remotely close. That's not even close. But what about, what about ex- excuse for not choosing a kicker in the squad? What about that one? What about his excuse if you can't dumb. coach in a week, you're not a real coach? Exactly. Verbatim. He has said a lot of dumb shit and done a lot of dumb shit. I, I think the, the issue here is we're, we're not arguing that he didn't do dumb shit. He's done dumb shit, like, for sure. But the, the difference will be, like, we it's going to be very hard to know at this point 
if the decision will pay off in four years' time because none of us have, you know, the, the ability to sell the future. It definitely hasn't paid off now. And whether it's done reprimand... Like, and, what if it, and what if it doesn't pay off in 2027, Nels? What if we only if, make... If it doesn't it pay off, it doesn't pay off, mate. That, this is how sport works. Island yeah. and you know, Ireland have picked blokes that are 38 and built all towards having experience. And now next year we'll have no one that has more than fucking 20 caps in their their squad. Completely untrue, mate. We we literally poo-pooed your theory on this, but look, you're, you're right. They had, they had some older players. 13 of their blokes, 13 of their their 23 will not be playing in a year or two time. So, uh, so that's no, I don't necessarily true, agree with that. I think they've got about three guys retiring before next year. So that means you're saying 10 the year. The rest of them are 31 and stuff and 30. Um, so they're not going to play in four years. Guys, I, th- I, th- I think we're all critical on how much he, he rushed out the experience, right? Like, I think the biggest thing that we're trying to touch on is that He's clearly failed. He, he quite clearly needs to find a much better balance between honouring and respecting the experience that Australian rugby has and then trying to usher in the new the new team. And I think it's it's fraught with danger to think you can pick the under-20 side and then let them play together for the next eight years in Test Rugby and expect them to win the World Cup eight years later. Like, it's just not a tactic that works. You need a better balance than that. Guys, let, let's push on, though. The Australian public and media's treatment of him. Now, this is a point I really wanted to talk about. I posted on Twitter the other day. There's obviously the Japan story. I'll give you the background and then you guys can give me your comments. The Japan story about him having an interview um, was released the day of the game against uh, Fee, you know, Wales. Um, he, you know, the, the reason from, I think it was Tom, Tom Deason that broke the news was he waited three days to make sure he had everything in line and was correct. And that, that's fine. Like we can take him on his word for that. I guess there's an element of wanting to be first out with the story because it was a big story, but there's no way he couldn't have waited 24 hours for that. So I think there's there's part of that. Um, still yeah. obviously been denied by Eddie, not that I think that disproves the story at this point. Um, every time Eddie Jones is on camera, the entire crowd booing him relentlessly, he's copped shit across social media across every journalist, everywhere. And, you know, I know a lot of this is his own doing and and we can get to that. But I've got to say, I think for a story of a a coach who knows he's in an underperforming team, making sure he has a backup plan if that's what he was doing, you know, and and proofs in the pudding, he hasn't left. If he leaves, again, we we have to look at a different lens. But I don't think it's a problem really for him to talk to another nation and have a backup plan. And he's been dragged through the mud so incredibly heavily. Like I actually think it's pretty embarrassing. And I I think there's a human aspect of even someone as as abrupt and divisive and rude as Eddie Jones can be. I think it's been pretty poor from us as fans and us as media um, and how we're treated. What do you guys think? We're, we're in a period of time where we're talking more and more about players' mental health, people's mental health. Right now, we're, we're in a position of Eddie is accused of something. He has not left. He is accused of maybe being about to leave. Um, and we've taken that as gospel, gospel, tore him to shreds, even when he's answered things and said, no, it's not true. I, I mean, you, you can argue all you like whether there are stuff we don't know. There is probably stuff going on that we don't know. But we know Rugby Australia loved to fire coaches. It was less than 12 months ago. They fired a coach who had been building for Rugby World Cup. So you would be fucking stupid to not have a backup plan. Why Why Louis, the um, Fiji coach, came out and said, I, he put it out that, you know, a vast majority of international coaches will be talking to other countries. That doesn't mean they're leaving. Like, Eddie created this 
shitstorm by how he treated media, media and how he sold so much hope to fans before the World Cup. But at some point, people need to realise he is still a human being and he has made mistakes. He hasn't gone and slaughtered people in front of their children and then paraded their the fucking body around. Like, he kind of has, to be fair. <laughs> He, he has made mistakes and he deserves to, to cop some some hate for it, for sure. But the amount of abuse he's getting in the media, and let's not forget a lot of that media is media that is, is geared towards supporting rugby league and making rugby u- union look bad. Not Tom Deason, not Sydney Morning Herald, but everyone related to Fox, which this huge Jamie Panderam has fucking blown up and said he's he's leaving a couple of days ago, saying he's leaving and he's going to announce it on Tuesday. Like they're talking about it like it's gospel. It's not fucking gospel. He has been accused of having meetings. They weren't in the meetings. The meetings might have been, I'm not going. The meetings might have been, I'm definitely not leaving. But if I get fired, who knows? Like we we don't know those details. So the burden of proof is no longer on Eddie Jones. The burden of proof is on the people that are accusing him of what is happening because he's come out and flat out denied it. So if you want to keep abusing him, Come with some evidence or stop fucking abusing him. That's that's where I'm at with it. No Abuse him about his choices. They're where dumb you, choices. Where do you stand, Nobun? Uh, with the Japan stuff, I think it's all kind of, yeah, you guys covered it pretty well. Um, I, I just think someone like Tom Decent, who, you know, it seems from what everyone discusses, he, he gets his points or he gets his sources pretty spot on. So it's surprising for a lot of people... He, he hasn't, and him and Sydney Morning have, Herald have made a number of statements and someone was uh, put it up on Twitter today saying these are claims they have made within the last 12 months but, yeah, and they've been wrong. So it doesn't mean he's always wrong yeah. just because he's a decent I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm, and, I'm not, and I'm not saying that he is right and the fact that Eddie's actually denied it flat out. Um, let's, let's just, just uh, before you go on, Let's not forget that he said in a media conference wearing a Stormers jacket, I'm 100% with the Stormers, I'm not talking to England. And then two days later announced he was coaching the English side. So, you know, like, sadly, yeah. I think he's broken trust so much that I, exactly. I trust Tom Decent, sadly, more than I trust our Wallabies and, coach. But, and, that's, and that's the saddest thing at the moment. He's, he, the, the, we've lost so much trust for all the fans. I, I don't understand mm-hmm. why he couldn't. It just be completely. We're not stupid. Wallabies fans are not dumb. We've been through the ins and the outs for the last. Four <laughs> <laughs> uh, ten of us. <laughs> we've, we've been through the ringer, and all we want as fans at the moment is just honesty and transparency, and no mind games from our head coach. And this is what he's constantly done to us. He said he, he's. And, and we all love Eddie. We all loved Eddie about two, three months ago when he when he got the job. We were all for it. We felt sad for Rennie, but we were like, hey, how good is this? We've got Eddie Jones back in Australia. We're going to back him the whole way. And then it's just kind of lie after lie after lie. And he's just let us down each time. We're going to win the Bledder Slow, win the Rugby World Cup. If you can coach it a team in a week, if you can't coach a team, you, if you can't coach a team in a week, you, you know you can't coach. You know all this lying is just one after the other, and I think the I think the public's just lost lost trust with him, and and there's no and 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 why we believe someone like Tom Deason more than Eddie Jones. 
Uh, no, mate, you're, you're in real estate. Eddie Jones could sell a shoebox as a one-bedroom house. Like, he sells hope right. and belief better than anything yeah. else. And that is part of what has made this so bad because we've all gone, there is 0% chance we're winning this World Cup. That's where we were at. And he goes, we're going to fucking do it. And some of us were pretty cynical from the day dot, and I went, ah, I don't see us winning but I'd like to see us get to a semi-final or potentially at least get to a quarter-final. So the fact that he sold the hopes so high and then it fell apart is part of where, where we're at as well. But in saying that, realistically, the bloke was trying to make his players confident and trying to get people who are not avid rugby fans to pay a bit of attention and watch the Wallabies. And, and yes, he did that wrong. Yes, he made mistakes there. But... It's a complex game. We've we've got a lot of uh, a lot of media we've got to battle with for other sports. But again, Tom Decent, it's not an attack on him, but the burden of proof is now on journo's like him who are rugby journo's and care about rugby. The burden of proof is not on Eddie about this stuff. But then we see Jamie Pandaram and other people that don't give a fuck that come in and pile on, and I don't think that's helpful for rugby, and I think that's made things far worse. Yeah, look, the the story can be true and still everything be okay. Like, I think that's the main thing. Like, the the story was big and and can be true and can still be fine that he had that. You know, we already talked about the fact that it's not necessarily the end of the world if he's having an interview. I think the issue is with a lot of the other media piling in, Pandaram being a, a bit of a culprit for it always, and and adding meaning and adding emotion and telling us how to feel and telling people how to feel <clears> that snowballing. And I think yeah. the, the journos that are out for the betterment of the game, like Tom Decent, need to be able to come through and actually say, well, no, like that's that's not what we're saying. That is normal place. As long as he can give us justification to say he's not prioritising Japan over Australia and that's not what it was, then things are okay. And I think the thing that made this so much worse mm-hmm. is Eddie speaks in riddles when he absolutely <laughs> needs to speak definitively. Still, they say to him, mate, are you going to go and coach in Japan or are you going to stay for your five years in Australia? He goes, I'm completely committed to Australia for now. So you saying that you will see out your five-year contract, well, it's not up to me. Well, mate, just say yes. I'm going to fucking see out my contract unless exactly. something fires me. Like, why yeah. the riddles? You are making yeah. it so much worse for yourself. Why leave the door open? Why leave the other it, door open? It, why? Look, it, it, almost, it almost feels like a defensive mechanism, right? Like, and, and it's not an excuse, but it almost feels like going, oh, I, I'd love to stay, but who knows if they're going to keep me? Like, and, and the thing is, when you keep getting asked and you keep answering and, and going around in circles, when no one's buying the first three or four times you fucking said that, like, he needs to realise that you need to be fucking confident and be definitive. But as you said earlier, Harry, he lied blatantly in a media press conference saying he's not leaving the Stormers and left two days later. So why does he beat around the bush now if he's really fucking leaving? He's got no issues lying to media. Hmm. Yeah, look, like like we said, the trust is gone. He look, he one of my questions was what do we actually want from him in this regard moving forward? And and to take the front foot on that, I think that Nabung nailed it before. We just he needs to stop treating people like fucking morons, like he's better yeah. than them. And I think Nelson, you skipped past a really important point. I wanted to really delve into why is he building us up the way he was about the, you know, we're going to win everything this year. And I completely agree. I think he's outwardly trying to show 
that we are a winning team that can win and he's trying to overcompensate for the losing mentality the Wallabies have had. He's trying to instill belief in this young side and also, as you said, he's trying to grow the game and that's so much of what he's doing. And he was happy to wear that if that went against them. I think that's fine. But I think the other problem is that the dishonesty and the, the the riddles and the rudeness to media, I think collectively now things haven't gone well for him. We need to all say, okay, enough's enough. You need to come out and you need to be actually decent to the rest of the media. You need yeah. to be direct about how you answer questions and you actually need to be honest with the public because we see through yeah. bullshit and that's what's getting people angry. Now, one other last point on that is we touched earlier on, oh, we need to know exactly why Quaid wasn't picked and why Hooper wasn't picked. I actually think that's bullshit. I don't agree with whoever said that. No coach in the world is saying, I did not pick Len Ikatow because he was giving me lip every time I said we're going to attain play with this changing shape of two pods of four or four pods of two, you know? No coach comes out and says that. So we don't need that level of access, but he needs to not treat people like morons and he needs not to cut down anyone trying to get information from him. So I I think that's the change I want to see. Do you guys have anything else to add? Yes, I I just want to go back, Kerry. You were kind of referring when, you know, everyone was talking about Quade Cooper or why did you select? This was before we just, just about to jump on the plane to go to the World Cup, yeah? Mm. I, I don't understand, and he kind of just deflected or, you know, I don't want to talk about these players. I want to talk about the players that are actually on going on the plane right now. I don't, I don't see I don't see a reason why he couldn't, you know, in, instead of us, uh, instead of the journos, they just want answers, right? And instead of actually getting the journos five minutes before, ten minutes before, they jump on the plane, get them into a room, whatever questions that they want to have off air, um, and then they can get their answers. So they, they very purposely, uh, I, I can't remember the exact details, so I don't want to misrepresent it, but they very purposely constructed the very limited access and line of questioning that media would have about that World Cup squad announcement. So they weren't able to ask those detailed questions before they got to the airport. And that was why the the media all came in with so many questions. There, there should have been opportunity before that, but Rugby yeah. Australia, Eddie Jones did not allow it. So they they stuffed up to start with, which means I completely agree they needed to give more opportunity of the day. But, you know, I would say the the one thing is, you know, he did say in this latest media conference when they, they asked him about telling the media to give, to give themselves an uppercut, he said, you know, sometimes in the heat of moment you say the wrong thing, I should, I should give myself an uppercut. So that's the one thing he's admitted to, like, yeah, I got that wrong straight up, so... Well, he still he still doesn't admit to getting the squad wrong. So what is what is what is well, he, he, he doubled down, mate? He said he said yeah. I think it's seven I did the right thing. Yeah, because he's, he's yeah, twenty five, twenty seven. He's he does not care about twenty three. It's clear the it's problem so is the entire public does. We didn't have to win the, it. The, one of the want to be embarrassed. One of the tricky things on what you were saying, Nabung, is he can't come out and go. Look, to be fair, I gave it, uh, Quade Cooper a chance, and I just don't think he's up to it because at this point, Quade was fucking burning. And it, that will seem like a deflection no matter what anyway. Like, there was no real answer Eddie could have given to a lot of those questions, and that's how he felt. Like, no matter what he said, it was going to be torn to shreds. Even when he's come out and said, no, he's not leaving, he, those decisions are put through a microscope. People going, oh, he's looking to the left a lot. He must be lying. We had all those fucking articles coming out. Like, he, it was it was a position where he had his back up created because of the stuff he has done prior to it, and it made the situation far worse. But 
in what other sporting landscape and World Cup do we have media turn up and go, you've picked a shit team. Why is your team so fucking shit? Are you going to still be this shit and keep having that sort of Absolutely line of not what happened, though. That's just how Mate, it was. It. What happened? They've gone, like, they, they literally just go, you picked the wrong people, all this sort of stuff. Like, the players are no literally. said you picked the, the wrong people. That's, that's completely false. You're misrepresenting what they said. Right. He said they, the exact same thing to the English, the English press before the World Cup, before that. He said, Put your hands up if you think we can win the World Cup. And no one put their hands up. He goes, there you go. You've already written us off. No one thinks we can do it. He did the exact <laughs> same thing four years earlier. So, no, they didn't. They just went in there. Nah, they, 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 barraged, they, they threw a barrage at him. And as I said, he dealt with it really poorly. But I think he is someone who gets his back up and then digs his heels in and makes things worse, which is on him. But I, I, I honestly think that, you know, he... He he's he needs a fucking media manager more than anything else, to be honest. Because than, yeah. as you guys have just said before, like, what do we want to see from him moving forward? He's the guy who has now started this process. We are in this position because we got rid of Rennie, who was the guy who started the last process, and we got rid of him before World Cup. So hold on, hold on, you're jumping the gun. We got one more question to get to. Nabon, what were your thoughts there? Uh, for which part do we want? Yeah, to, I can see you trying to, to jump in, mate. Uh, do we want him to keep his job? Is that where we're up to? No, that's that's our last question. It was just about the media and the exit. Um, I mean, I just think that he needs to go around the media or go about the media a very much different way, more than anything. Lunch. Um, I think it's it's not that hard to say. I don't want to talk about Quaid and Hooper and why they didn't get selected because those players are hurting and I'm not one to publicise why those decisions were made and heap more negativity on those players. Let's focus on the guys that I have paid. I pick well, Why can't he say that? You know, why can't he say that? I agree. That? I agree. That's what he should say that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll be his media manager. Um, okay, guys, yeah, do, yeah. We want to, do we want him to keep his job? Nelson, you were you were in a string of thought there. You're getting going down that alley. Go for it. Yeah, so... The Wallabies repetitively do not let a coach see out the cycle. Eddie has brought us into a world of pain at the moment, and I think, like we believe prior to the World Cup, he has the runs on the board. He is very experienced. He has lots of influence. I still think he could be the guy moving forward that gets us to a position where we need to be because no other coach will come in and be able to manage Rugby Australia and get what we need moving forward. So I think we're in this position because we gave him fucking 12 months to to create significant change, which was never going to happen. The person that is at their head that made that decision is Hamish. Hamish we'll, get to, so, we'll get to that. That's so, But, yeah, so he didn't make that, you know, that decision all out on his own. I, I think we need to see him out moving forward, but there need to be things put in place to go, hey, mate, you now have a media manager. Like, you, you cannot deal with the media like you have. You know, like, these things have to fucking happen. And if he goes, no, I'm not going to fucking do it, and he goes, sweet, we're not putting the me you in front of the media. We are going to put other people in front of the media, and you have now lost your privilege to fucking to, to do that. And when you do and there's repercussions, then you're going to have to face repercussions from us. Like, he, he they, they, can't, they can't fucking just fire him at this point. It, we can't pay him out. So they need so to, to summarise, do you want him to keep his job? I want him to keep his job. I, I think if we're in a shitstorm because we fired the last coach and let him see it out, why don't we let this guy see it out? And, and uh, Nabon? Right, the only reason he keeps his job is because we have no one else and we have no money. So that's is, the only reason. Is, why there, is there anyone else that you think that would want the job that you would rather no. take? Um, Dan McKellar. 
you would rather Dan McKellar, who's never been a head coach of an international side, yeah. has never taken the, any team to a championship to yeah. come in and take us at the worst ever position as a rookie international coach, you think he's he's more qualified? For what for what reason do you think that he would be a better option? I, well, first of all, I don't think Eddie's apt for the job anymore. I think he was sacked from, 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 from England for a reason. I think he's gone completely AWOL. He's a, he's a dictator. He doesn't like working with anyone. Who left Who left when when Eddie got the job? McKellar, Laurie Fisher. Man, and that, who's the that's league? support, though. Like, we, we can't yeah, say that's all is, because it's Eddie. Like, support. if you if you fire a coach that you're working with into a World Cup, a lot of people are going to walk out. doesn't fucking matter who you bring in. And they're all assuming they're getting fired anyway. Like, and Dan McKellar also was offered a leadership role in a giant club in the Northern Hemisphere. You of know, course. like If he was offered that, regardless, there's a decent chance he was going. He said it was too good a chance to put... To so many players have come out. Of course. And because he didn't players. want to work support. with... Because he didn't want to work with Eddie Jones. Well, no it, one, I, I don't no think you can say that because so many coaches have come out and said, I never developed more than when I worked under Eddie Jones. So many players, so many coaches try and work underneath him to try and get the development you get from being pushed that hard. You should have time. So someone that he didn't have so fucking hard. time to. Uh, so I, time I don't completely related. agree with that. I don't, look, I, I know what you're saying. He has a turnover, but you know, I, I don't think it's as bad as what people say either. Obviously, he's. There's no doubt about his, his track record has been, you know, for the past 20 years, it's, it's been it's been great. But I, I don't think the last couple of years with England hasn't been good. Mate, last, he he is lo- still the most successful coach ever in the history of England when you look at his win rate. So, yes, he had a poor last couple of years. That means he yeah. was fucking amazing before that. Only, they went from mate, not winning Six Nations to, you're only, to winning you're only a number. Judged, mate, you're only judged on your last game or your last race. He like rubbish, mate. His rubbish. issue is he was well, he was very vocal. Wait, no, Nebong, no Nebong, no that's rubbish. He was talking about Rennie. How, guys, how he was very. Yeah, Ed Rennie had a thirty-four percent win rate. Ed, yeah, exactly. Ed so not your was last very, match. very vocal. It's not your last match. Eddie Jones was very, very vocal about the fact that he would happily lose every single game between the two World Cups to win the 2023 World Cup with England. So he was trying to completely innovate at that nation, change how the game was played in a hope to make England the cutting edge of any rugby world team, world rugby team. So he was very vocal about the fact that that would cost them results in the midterm, but he was doing it in a long-term plan to develop. Now, I'm not saying that's right, but he was up front and said that. And then midway through, three-quarters of the way through that development plan where he said things would be hard, they cut him and they didn't allow him to have it unfold. Now, it you might have know. ended up just like the World Cup for Australia. It may have, but we'll never know. So I don't think we can judge him on that. I just prefer Dan McKellar. All right. Well, I'm, that, that's Yeah, okay. In- <laughs> interesting. I, I um, personally, I don't think there's anyone that would want the job that I want over Eddie Jones. I 100%. I think for me he has shown enough that he's such an experienced coach. He knows the Australian rugby landscape. He's going to work 20 hours a week. He wants to push centralisation. He wants to upskill the rugby clubs. He turns up in England. He was going to rugby clubs every other day from the grassroots of the game. Like the, the benefit of having this guy working for you is huge. And although I'm scarred by how bad this World Cup performance was, and I mean that Wales game was the worst thing I've ever seen, 
I, I almost never wanted to watch Australia for the rest of the World Cup. You know, I wasn't, I had tickets and flights to go see them and I was going to ditch them. Um, I, I still think he deserves to be the person to have an opportunity to dig him out of this hole. I just pray to God he does. I just pray to God he does. That's that's my opinion. But yeah, I'm, I'm Basically, we have no one else. No, we have no one else is what you say. Mate, it, yeah, it's already, because it's such a no tough job. Because it's such a tough Mate, job, though. Like, there's not many coaches in the world that I would trust to be, go in and have a better chance of fixing it either. Like, who, who would you? You'd probably take uh, Andy Farrell. Farrell. You'd probably take Steve Hansen based off of his record. You'd take... Um, Fabiel Galtier, the porn master, you know, like there's, but there's not many players that have been able to show at this level in recent history that they can do it. I, I wouldn't take Jake White despite his success. I, I'd probably get all the probably games, but he'd never show, he was never able to get us over the line. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's not a lot. There's not a lot. More, a coach will be willing to walk into a system that, you know, is underperforming if they believe there is a way forward for them. But if a coach thinks that they're never going to get to see through a cycle that they get hired for in their contract and they're going to get fired beforehand, they'll be too scared to make decisions and we're never going to get someone to come in and actually, you know, be be a coach moving forward and, and create change in rugby Australia. The only one is Eddie. Would you take check? Would you take check again? Why? Yeah, he was fucking like shit house in 2019. He was fucking shit house. His game plan was he, fucking He made a quarter he had final. No plan B. He had years to build a plan B, and it was fucking shit. Why would you take him? Because he got to a semi-final with Argentina. I actually think he's like, a much better coach than he was then. We sadly, we I, got, again, rookie international coach. He I loved him a lot by coaching the Wallabies. I love Czech, but I think he's getting better. And I think he's, he and he will be he, better when we should him in eight years' time. Well, but he get it, he's in five years, ten time, years. Yeah. That's him. He's not now. I agree. All right. For dessert, boys. Desserto. Um, you Nelson started going down this road before. Just lastly, you know, Rugby Australia, Hamish McLennan, uh, Phil War, the board, like who else should have some accountability and what, what do you think should happen there? See ya, Hamish McLennan, mate. I mean, yeah, you're you're the bloke that came in and goes, let's get rid of Rennie and bring in Eddie 12 months from a World Cup when the first six months of that, Eddie doesn't even get to have a training session with the boys. Like, I mean, f- for me, that is just such a dumb decision. There's probably reasons behind it where maybe Eddie put pressure on and said, I, I want to be in there and you need to hire me this year. Or maybe they offered Rennie, you know, to, to work alongside Eddie or whatever, and he said no, but... Realistically, he's the head of the snake, and the snake has been taking the piss. So I'd be getting rid of him and and finding someone else that can bring us forward. And no, no one else on the board for you. Um, look, Phil Wall hasn't been there long. Uh, there's, there's other guys that haven't been there. You know, that that haven't had the, I suppose the the decision uh, making ability of of someone like Hamish McLennan, uh, who who probably is. It sounds like doing some positive things there. Um, you know, with centralization and other stuff he's doing, Bill Warm a bit nervous about how much he, he loves Shoot Shield as someone who loves Shoot Shield. Um, that's not the way forward for Rugby Australia. But he, he's not the guy who I, I think needs to to fall for this. Um so yeah, no, I think it's, it's Hamish McClendon is the one to go for me. And, and uh super sub, super wild. Someone, has, someone has head has to roll for this performance and 
because we can't get rid of Eddie because there's no one else, we can always get another administrator. So Hamish McLennan is, um, see you later, mate. Kagi, Kagi, you're not Kagi, you're normally Kagi. Neighbor, would you get Peter Villandi from the NRL, mate? You're the horse bloke. The horse guy, yeah. Would you bring him in? Because he makes that mess, you know, so much better. Would you bring him in? No, I I would get, mate, just just another administrator. Raylene Castle was awesome. She was. Raylene Castle was awesome. That's the issue with media, right? Like, we beat down on her and, and crucified her. Wait, media man. sucks when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> hey, let, let me give a contrary opinion. Um, Go for it. I would keep both Hamish McLean and Eddie Jones. I wouldn't fire anyone. Now, I think there was the fuck-up to end all fuck-ups, to be honest with you. Let me, let me make that very, very clear. But I think it's so, so clear that Australia needs to centralise I think their entire performance pathway, I think they need massive, massive reform in how they deal with the grassroots and how they try and develop talent through age groups and how they um, promote their club footy and, and everything else, how they actually go to public schools and promote the game. You know, like there's, there's so much change needed from top to bottom. And I think Hamish McLennan, for his incredibly negative impact from firing Dave Rennie six months out of the World Cup for for Eddie Jones and that hospital pass that was given and the hospital pass that he willingly uh, made worse. Um, I think that he is the perfect person to strong arm the state arms of the game into making that happen. And I say that based off of everything he's done so far, he is an absolute shit stirrer piece of work i would hate to be against him in anything because it's like a dog with a bone and i think with the state rugby union being queensland act um other ones that are the most vocal at the moment but also new south wales etc there is no better administrator that will come in and say this is what needs to happen i am not letting you off the hook there is no compromise this is happening suck it up Let's find a way to make it happen. And, you know, there was all this um, hoopla about ACT being really upset about the offer that they got. And then, you know, by the same notion, uh, one of the uh, on the same topic of centralisation and needing to develop our grassroots, the, the Shoot Shield guys came up again and went, oh, you know, like we already said there should just be a national club rugby comp. We gave the solution and no one took it. So there's all these people that have been trying to line their own pockets or have been trying to hold power and have been trying to power grab that are coming up and going, well, clearly this means we were right when absolutely it doesn't in the slightest. I don't agree with the states at all, to be honest with you. I think McLennan's dead right and Eddie Jones is dead right. They just need to fucking give them power and set up as much alignment as they can. They need a copy island system because they're such a similar program to us and they need to try and steal as much IP as they possibly can. So was I, Aussie think, IP. I think he's the perfect guy. I just I just think the asshole that yeah. he is, he's the perfect guy for that role. I get what you're saying, Has, but do you trust the bloke? Uh, to to for, to look you, out for the best interests of, of rugby Australia, to his own knowledge, one hundred percent. Do you, I think he will make? Him. Yeah, do I think he'll make every right decision? Not necessarily. Do I think he will do his absolute best to grow the game and do what he thinks in is the absolute best thing for the game? I think hands down, yes. If you don't trust him, then why would you throw? Why would you throw the keys? 
you know, I do trust him. I just told you 100%. Yes, I trust him. He will do everything he can. So centralization through the big thing out of this that you just said is we're a similar system to Ireland. We are right. Like that they're a small nation. They're smaller than us, but they have, you know, less players that are they're competing with other big rival codes. They yes, they have a, another rival code to compete with. They have centralized, they have made their system you know, a professional lot more teams is similar as well. And an Aussie guy was the guy that who who helped a lot of this centralization. I'm pretty sure it was New Sephora. Yeah, it is. He's still- um, who said, I want to do this in Australia. And they said, no, get fucked. And he went over there and now look at Ireland. So I mean, if if there's anyone if there's anything that needs to change, we need him back in Australia rather than getting. He doesn't want to come. Mate. He said he said he tried, and they they flicked him off. I know, I know. But right now, as you just said, we're probably in this sweet spot. We're we're in this sweet spot where we have guys willing to make significant change. So you know, the the offer could definitely be renewed and said, mate, this is the entirety of what we want to do, and we need you here, and we need you doing it. He's a fucking Aussie. Like, it's it's perfect. He understands our system. He understands everything. If you can't get him, you can't get him. But, I mean, he is more important than signing any league player, signing any fucking one else, any player that's that's around. He is the guy that we should be talking about and fucking working on getting. Yeah, I agree. What's, Guys, up with signing, what's up with us and signing leagueies at the moment as well? Can we just quickly talk about that? Uh, yeah, Henry I mean, McLennan said, let's get four more... Or if we had four or said 14 more, more. Is that what Suolais, 14 more Suolais. 14 more Suolais, Suolais, we'd be looking pretty good. As in, yeah. if we had a whole team of players that have never played professional rugby union. So, again, some of his judgment's not spot on. I don't believe yeah. he's right, but that's why he has a board to advise as well, right? Like the yeah. overarching board is the reform that's, that's needed. He, he, he's also trying to rile up rugby league. And it worked and got heaps of heaps and heaps of media attention before. And, and as you said, we're spending so much money on Suwali or Suwali'i. I mean, mate, we've, we've got a body that is not Rugby Australia that throw hundreds and hundreds of thousands at these players. There's a fucking really realistic chance half a mil of that is not being paid by Rugby Australia a year. So, I mean, if, let's use some of our positives. You know, if you were to bring someone like that in and they, to give us some media, I, I'm not against it. But we need to be very careful on how we tread that line. Um, I, I, people talk about, yeah, we sign a Suwali and we lose someone else. But, I mean, this is professional sport. You're, you're going to sign players and they may not be as good as someone else and someone else might leave. You know, like that, that's how this thing works. But we just need to be... You know, making the right choices when it comes to uh, a team level. Picking Suwali because he's on big money is not the right choice. Right. Between between McLennan and Eddie, it's just a big swinging dick competition. Absolutely. So can, it's, it's ridiculous. Hey, just... We know you love to watch that, though. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen your search history. <laughs> Guys, last question for the night. Um, we have a question from at Brendan Wessels. He said... How does Rugby Australia begin to make itself more commercially attractive to negotiate better TV rights in comparison to AFL and Rugby League? Uh, we did get one reply from Wade at Wade Pretorius. He said, just sell to the Saudis. Is that the solution or is there another solution? No, uh, I need I need a minute to think about the question. Um, Look, yeah. I... Okay, Nels. I've I've got a, a a strong opinion to to be really honest. Um, look, I I think we've talked 
really, you know, on, on our own podcast that, you know, players aren't playing enough in Australia. You, you look at someone like Intermac, he's played 107, you know, um, times in professional rugby, not including international. Um, Smith has played 140 times in that England comp and Lolisio has played 50 times. These guys are the same age. Rugby is not getting played enough in Australia. We keep saying that they're playing too much, but we're playing 14 games in Super Rugby where they're playing 24, 26 over there. Rugby League has so many more games and they're all domestic games basically. So, of course, media wants that. I, I think we we really need to to actually double down on how many Aussie games we have. Uh, and my, my solution for this is I think we need to broaden our base a little bit. I, I'd say we have a... You know, seven Aussie teams, you add another New South Wales team and it could be Western Sydney and you create a local rivalry there. You add Queensland Country and you got a local rivalry there and you add Fiji into it and that's an eight-team comp. They play each other twice. There's 14 games. There's your Super Rugby. But then at that point, we talk about a cohesion being significantly bad and needing to improve. You condense those teams into two or three and then that's when you play your, your matches against New Zealand and if you want, need more money, you can play it against Japan. So you play 14 games domestically. We have a local competition where we get local finals. We get local fan bases winning the competition, which was was really successful over COVID when we had Super Rugby AU. We're not creating new franchises from from the ground up. Where you know you're, you're supporting no. the Waratahs still. You're not getting rid of the Western Force. All these negatives around it. So that you're playing more domestic games, and then we condense and build cohesion in another smaller format where we play some New Zealand teams and things. Huge broadcast rights, more cohesion, the more only, playing base, the only more games show. criticism I have is as soon as you put the Australian A's and the Australian ones in Super Rugby against New Zealand and the Australian comp is the Australian comp, people stop caring about the Australian, the Brumbies and the Waratahs and the, and the Reds, in my opinion, because nah, of the mate, fact that, that it's, they're, they're it's two tiers the down from the top. Like, name any sport nah. in Australia where people love a, a game that's not at its top level, you know? We don't Rugby care league. about soccer. Rugby, Rugby league. league. They don't care, mate. The top is the NRL and an origin. And mate, that's the top is state of origin. So the top is three games of that that's... a year. So you can't, yeah. you can't live on three games a year. The top no, product can't. is the NRL, clearly. Harry, because they've built the domestic comp. The, the NRL is the, a good example, right? You have a local fan base in Australia winning the comp. You have huge media. You have other like people around it because they're all Aussies. Like the soccer, right? Mate, soccer's different because you pick, you're picking from yeah. blokes that aren't very good. So, it, oh, honestly, like there's so many better players all the way around the world. That's the issue, right? Like you you have the... You mean like in Australia games. and rugby? That's what we're saying we don't do. We have... A more we have a bit bigger catchment in Australia. You have seven teams to to hold your players. We get more broadcast rights because we have significant more games. So right now, in Super Rugby, I think we have sixty. Well, we'd have sixty odd Super Rugby matches in Australia at the moment. So forty nine Super Rugby AU and thirteen fourteen Super Rugby Pacific. That's what we we could have right sixty. Right now we get thirty six. So you're doubling the games in Australia. We're getting Australia versus Australia, like. All of a sudden, your broadcast money is worth significantly more. We rely on they only really want to fucking pay for international footy because, you know, that's what people watch because we don't build a domestic comp that people actually want to watch. We had a huge increase of viewers when we had Super Rugby AU. I, don't um, get rid of the I, the, 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 You're missing the point again. Super Rugby AU was still 
that top level below international footy. I don't think, I think Australians love winners, which we aren't, and we need to work out a way to fix that. Forward, and we yeah. love the pinnacle of the sport. Australians tune into the Wallabies because that's the pinnacle of the sport. They tune into the NRL because that's the pinnacle of the sport. They tune into the AFL because right. it's the pinnacle, pinnacle of the sport. Who's watching AFL when they go over and play like kickback, force backs against Ireland? No one. It's the most supported game in the world, and they play that stupid version of the sport against Ireland with their AFL sides. No they one watches it. What I think. The Rugby League World Cup, mate. Everyone watches Rugby League. They go to the World Cup. No one gives us stuff. Why does no one give us stuff? That's international level. That's not what you're saying, though, right? No, no, that's, that's precisely what I'm saying because their their international level is not the pinnacle of their sport. Their NRL is more competitive not a real and there's a better level, level the than their international level. It's, you, you're, you're oversimplifying it because the NRL, you have domestic fan bases that have local rivalries where people will turn up. If we have two Sydney teams and Western Sydney becomes a team and they start to be a bit of a success and beat the Waratahs, they would go fucking wild. Like, there are things like in the NRC, right? There. Like that team in the NRC no, that got created and then won and then everyone got behind them. Not, not remotely similar. I mean, they're, they're all made up teams with no history. We're talking you don't get rid of any of our teams currently. So, but the team that you just said we create in Western Sydney is a created team. But you just so, said yes, the Waratahs that people are going to like them. Yeah, you're creating two of seven teams. Like we've built the Force, like we've built the, the Rebels. Your whole competition's not built around random new teams with no meaning. You're adding two teams in to build rivalries and a bigger base, and then you can condense them. So imagine you had, you know, Two New South Wales-based teams, the Waratahs and Western Sydney. I, 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 I think we're starting to go around in circles. I'll, I'll cut you off there, but I understand what you're saying. I think the issue is it's a it's a complex problem um, where where there's many discussions around those formats, and there's pros and cons of all of them for sure. Um, Nabung, any closing thoughts on getting some TV rights now that you've finished that glass of wine? Yeah, no, I just think obviously it starts with wins from the top for the Wallabies, but. Um, I think rugby union itself. It, it, I think union itself has a bit of a fundamental problem with mm-hmm. um, popularity, especially in Australia, because it's just so complicated. Um, I think we need to simplify and have more consistency with rules. Um, and I, I, no one gets it. Anyone, you know, any fair weather fan or any new fan is just go, "How does this game even work?" And, we, and they don't quite understand it. So it's it's really hard to get into. What are we changing there? Like, because as, as you said, like, it yeah. starts with the, with Australia. But that, I mean, it probably ends with Australian performances. Like, we can't get good performances unless we, we make changes. Yeah, no, no, of course. Well, from the Wallaby side, obviously, we've discussed this whole podcast, what the fuck the issue, what the issue is, and, and what it, and what it, it's been more than 20 years since since we've had had this problem. So... It's, it's it's it starts and we it ends it starts and ends with Wallabies Wallabies winning. Uh, I actually think as as a broader aspect, rugby union has some fundamental issues with with rules. Um, especially like I, I don't even we don't even know whether things are a try anymore until they go up hey, to man. the TMO and you you're never gonna it. you're never gonna change that with the success at international level right now. Can I well on, on that though? It, it has like, to change. It has to change because it's killing it, the game. Nabung, do you, do you not think that Australian rugby is too reliant on Wallaby's success when for 20 years we haven't fucking had it? Like, French rugby is not reliant on French success. Their rugby is doing awesome. They've never won a World Cup. 
Yeah. Like if, if you are all geared towards having international success, you will slowly fade away domestically. Like you need to be able to stand on your own two feet. And I don't think Super Rugby stands on its own two feet well enough because we don't have a big enough base. We don't have enough games in Australia. We don't have enough to offer. And, and we don't pastors. win. And because we, we don't win. win. Yeah. So, so we, guys, we need to be less reliable. Let's, let's wrap it up. I think we've hit about an hour and a half, hour 40. I think in summary, change everything but change nothing. <laughs> Start at the top <laughs> and at the bottom and in the middle at the same time. Fire everyone and no one and things will be fine. Is that the main takeaway for, from the three of us? Yes, that's the gist. It sounds right, but get rid of McKellar, McLennan. All right. Thank get you very McKellar much, fellas. We'll see. I, don't, I don't know if we're going to do another one of these this year. We'll just see how we go, see if we get a free night again to do it on a, ad hoc <laughs> when we're arguing on Facebook. But uh, thank you for joining us, Super Sub. Thanks for joining us, Nels. Thanks, boys. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, lads.